0: $598 billion. That's the, the budget committed this past year to our nation's defense. Just one year, $598 billion. Or in addition to that, $50 billion. That's roughly what we spent on homeland security in the past year to secure our borders and try to protect our domestic interests. Twelve times your annual salary. Well, according to T. Rowe Price, that's the estimate of how much you'll need to have in savings if you're going to be able to retire safely at 65. Now, listen, some of you are just going to stop and start to run a bunch of math. You can do that after the message. So, just 12 times your annual salary. If you want to think about that, think about that, and then write it down and reflect on it later. I'm going to lose you for the rest of the sermon. All right. $500 a year. That's roughly the cost to buy a $500,000 20-year term life insurance policy if, if you're about a 40-year-old male. $30 a month, that's the cost of, of LifeLock's Identity Plus Theft Protection Service, $30 a month. $490, the cost of an entry-level Smith & Wesson 9mm. Okay, what in the world do all of these numbers have in common? Why do I bring these numbers up? What's the significance? Well, I think those numbers reflect the fact that we're willing to pay a high price for security. Whether we're talking about national security or financial security or border security or even bodily security, we're willing to pay a steep price in order to keep ourselves safe. So I wonder then, how this morning would you respond if you felt like your security and your safety was threatened? You know, how would you respond? Where or whom would you turn to, right? Where would you go? Could okay, help us think through some of these questions, I want us to turn in our study uh, back to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, this morning, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the, in the seat back before you, you should be able to find that on page 230. Again, page 230, if you're using one of the Bibles provided there and the seat backs before you. But if you're just joining us, you're coming into the study, we're a number of chapters in, just to bring you up to speed, in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, Israel is really pictured in spiritual shambles, right? Her, her head priest is old and incompetent. His failing eyesight is just a, a telling picture of the kind of spiritual blindness that hung like an impenetrable fog over Israel. His dissolute sons preferred wine and women over genuine worship. Israel in the first few chapters looked irredeemable. And yet after 20 years through chapters 4 and 6 of being really humbled and humiliated, in chapter 7 last week, Israel, under Samuel's leadership, turns with a heartfelt contrition back to the Lord. And for the first time in the book, Israel seems to repent of her wayward ways. And the Lord then responds to his people's cry with a great thunder. He repels the Philistine invaders and he restores Israel to the lands that she had lost and so we close last week in chapter 7 with this beautiful image of God's people living under his loving rule. It's really a picture of Eden restored. All right, there's just one problem. All right, you've got this wonderful leader in Samuel, but of course no, no leader lives forever. And Samuel's growing old, and with the passing of time, we begin to see that Israel's enemies, after getting routed, well, they're, they're becoming restless again. They're gathering again at the borders. And in the midst of this increasing uncertainty at home and, and the growing hostilities abroad, how is Israel going to respond? Who will they turn to? Right, what should that teach us? All right, we're going to look into chapter 8 to find out. And I'm just going to, so we're going to walk through the text and we're going to hit some points as we go through. And I think the first thing I want us to see in these first few verses point one, spiritual problems require more than political solutions. Spiritual problems require more than political solutions. We're going to think about that as we walk through verses 1 to 9 of chapter 8. So we pick up the story, chapter 8, verse 1. Again, spiritual problems require more than political solutions. Chapter 8, verse 1, when Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah because they were judges, and I should say, and they were judges there in Beersheba. Okay, so we pick up the story there in verse 1. We go through verse 2, and that opening expression gets our attention. When Samuel, when he became old, and we remember the last time when of Israel's leaders became old back with Eli and it, that it didn't go so well back there in chapter 4 right but Samuel's a godly man certainly he has two godly sons we would be led to believe that by their very own names Joel which means Yahweh is God Abijah means my father is Yahweh so he's becoming old but we have these names of these Wonderful names of these sons. But then we come to verse three. And we read in verse three, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And right there we stop, we're like, oh no. We're right back to where we were in chapter two. And then all the elders, we read in verse 4, all the elders of Israel gather together, they come to Samuel at Ramah, and they say to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. They do not walk in your ways. Once again, Israel's aged leader is being succeeded by his own scandalous sons. And when it says, just to be clear, they turned aside after gain, that doesn't mean that Samuel's sons left the ministry to pursue a career in banking. That's not what's being pictured here at all. Rather, it means they sought dishonest, they sought unjust gain by taking bribes and by perverting justice. Under these two sons, justice was for sale, and yet this was strictly prohibited by God's word to his people back in Deuteronomy 16. We read that you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and it subverts the cause of the righteous. You see, the Bible is deeply concerned with this whole notion of justice. It recognizes, the Bible does, there is such a thing as right or wrong, as truth and error. And the Bible calls out falsehood very clearly. And it's why Christians, those who bear God's name, made in His image, we should be among the most sickened by those who would make a mockery of just laws, especially as Patterson was praying at the expense of of the powerless and of the weak. It's why of all people, we have to stand for right against wrong, for truth against error, whatever it may cost us. And yet Joel and Abijah were more interested in lining their own pockets than they were here in chapter eight with pursuing justice. In Israel, justice was open to everyone, Kind of much like the Ritz Carlton, right? If you've got the money, you can pay for it. So, how did we get here? Right, how did we get to this place in the beginning of chapter 8? Because Samuel, he's represented in every way as a faithful man, he has impeccable character we were given no reason to conclude that this wouldn't have transferred to his parenting as he cared for his sons. Surely Samuel would not have sent openly scandalous sons to, to sit on the bench there in Beersheba. And just a word to parents. You know, back in chapter two, I was pretty hard on Eli. I think he was a delinquent priest, and he was a delinquent parent. And he did, he did not cease his son's activities. He was complicit in what they did. His warnings were too few. His warnings were too late. For him, we said, blood, remember, ran thicker than biblical devotion. And it was a stirring reminder, Eli was, tragically, of how we ought to think very carefully of of raising and being diligent with our own children, that they might avoid the fate of Hophni and Phinehas. But I want you to notice even here in chapter 8 that Impeccable character, right? Careful parenting, which presumably, given the godliness of Samuel, he would have exhibited, that doesn't save Joel and Abijah. Holiness isn't hereditary. We can't pass it on like we pass on our last names. You know, children, they're not widgets that come off some assembly line. Right, you input in, input in, input in, and then out pops this very godly, righteous little child. The hearts are far too complex for that. They're too twisted for that. If you have wayward children this morning, if you've got wayward children as a parent and you're broken over them, the temptation is always to play the you know the what-if game. What if I had spent more time with them? What if I had been more diligent to discipline them? What if I was a bit too strict and I crushed their spirits? What if I had read to them more, or if I had played with them more, or if I had prayed with them more? You know, we just get, What if, what if, and those run through our minds. And listen, we ought to, to raise up and teach and train our children to point them to Christ, but we can't make our children come to Christ. And we shouldn't necessarily assume that we are the ones to blame if they don't. You know, perhaps some of you have come in this morning, well, perhaps you need to place less fault at your own feet and rather bring your burdens before the feet of him who has the power to change rebellious hearts. Let the story of that prodigal son that we heard preached this past summer, let that, let that remind you that we serve a prodigal God who delights to call the wayward home, and while there is still breath and there is still life, there is still hope, and you pray, and you pray, and as opportunity, you speak and your child's life, even if they're 60 today, and you pray and hope that God will be that prodigal God to them but just an application to children as well, to some of the youth in the room. right? You can have Christian parents, and you can have wonderful Christian friends, right? but the presence of those Christian parents and friends, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily a Christian. right? Faith, we said, it's not something that, that you inherit. Faith isn't passed down. Perhaps Joel and Abijah thought that their father's great faith kind of Served like a a security blanket, some spiritual air cover over their own lives. Maybe you think your parents' faith can protect you. But you know, the problem with that is that what Jesus requires of us when we stand before Him one day is perfection, and your parents' faith, as wonderful that is, that's not enough. Right? We need the faith, we need the life. The perfect life of another to stand in our place. We need that faithfulness of Jesus Christ. All of us do, whether or not we are 80 or whether or not we are eight. We need His righteousness in our own place. So, if you are a child, let me just encourage you this morning take delight. If you've got Christian parents and Christian friends, take delight in that. But you need to make some real serious, conscious decisions in your own mind about who you're going to follow and who you are going to serve and to trust that Jesus and him alone is the righteous one as you turn to him and trust in him who can cover your sins. All right, that's something you have to decide. That's something you have to pursue. No one else can do that for you. All right, but returning to the story, all the parallels between Samuel's sons and Eli's in these first verses, they suggest horrifyingly that Israel's story back in the early chapters is about, to, we're just about to hit the repeat button and go right down that same path. You can feel the tension building, right? Who now is going to, to rule and to govern justly? Who's going to deliver Israel when Samuel's gone? How would you deal with the situation? You know, would you say, like, let's put the sons on probation? Maybe let's put them into some community service, and maybe seek a little bit of moral transformation for them, a little moral reformation, or maybe you might think, "Hey, Samuel, why don't you consider appointing some other godly leaders uh, in their place? Or maybe you'd appeal to God that He might raise up another judge to lead the people. So what, what are the people going to do? They've been in this position before. What are they going to do? We pick up the story, the second half of verse five, and what do they say? "Your sons are old. They do not walk in your ways. To which the people respond, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We'll stop right there. So what's the solution of the elders and the people? Well, their solution is political revolution. That's what they propose there in the second half of verse 5. They want a new form of government. For all intents and purposes, it's a coup there in chapter 8, verse 5. Out with Samuel and in with a king. And realize a monarchy was not indigenous to Israel. God had raised up leaders like Moses and Joshua. He'd raised up judges like Samson and like Samuel. But he had never raised up a king. And unlike the role of priests, which is outlined, defined many times in the, in the Old Testament, there is precious little about kingship in the first, few, uh, first five books of the Bible. Just a few verses in Deuteronomy 17. And when you read that, kingship almost sounds more like a concession. It almost sounds like something that's foreseen and permitted rather than openly advocated by God. And maybe that's because God knows the kind of king that his people are going to demand. Notice what kind of king, what do they want? They don't just want a king. They want a king like all the nations, verse 5. And here we clearly see Israel's assessment of her situation is correct, just like it was back in chapter 4. She's in a leadership crisis, but once again, her solution is all off her response is not correct. For the constant refrain of the Old Testament, Exodus 33, 16, just to name a place, is that Israel is to be distinct from the nations. Israel's not to be like the nations. Israel's to be different, right? She's to be a holy priesthood. She's to point the nations to the one true God, not be like the nations, and thus confuse to the nations who God is. Israel suffers from a spiritual problem, right? Corrupt judges, they can be replaced. All that can be remedied. But the fact that Israel doesn't ask for new judges reveals she suffers from a deeper spiritual problem. Israel doubts God. She doubts God. She doubts God in this moment is able to care and provide for her. She fears for her future. And so right here, she's desperately grasping at anything tangible that speaks to safety and security. Because that's what a monarchy provides. You've got a king, he has his stately palace, his royal officers, his conscripted army. Right? Those are all tangible signs, visible signs of strength and power, and it's what their neighbors have, so why shouldn't they have it? In their fear, and in that request, they're grasping for security. I wonder if you know what that's like to be fearful, fearful of your future, fearful of being alone, fearful of being unemployed, fearful of being rejected, fearful of of being a failure, maybe even fearful of death. Well, our instinct in those moments is to turn to something immediate, something tangible. Maybe we run into the arms of another, even when we know that that person isn't going to be good for us. But why will we prefer the temporary stability and the safety and the companionship that that offers rather than being alone? Or we run headlong into our own careers, even at a great cost. Why do we do that? Even when we know it's costing us our family, costing us even more. We do it because there's tangible signs of success. You know, there are the plaques and the awards that dot our desks as reminders. Fear we see here is going to lead us to do things that we would otherwise never consider doing. So that season of unemployment leads us in fear to embellish our resumes a bit. A season of financial strain leads us to be it be a bit underhanded. Maybe whether or not it's underhanded at work, maybe it's underhanded with What we owe to the government, a season of childlessness, and the fear that comes with childlessness can lead us to pursue medical intervention that we would have previously considered unethical. Friends, beware the consequences of fear. Fear breeds doubt and unbelief. That God is good and that He is sufficient. It causes us to look away from Him, to turn our gaze from Him, and to vainly put our hope in that which cannot deliver and cannot satisfy. So just ask yourselves what do you fear this morning? Is there any way in which that fear is actually leading you astray, leading you away from the Lord? For fear, when left unchecked and when not dealt with, will eventually lead you not merely to doubt God, it'll actually lead you to reject him. We see that in verses six through nine. They've asked for a king like the nations. We read in verse six, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the waves of the king who shall reign over them. Did you catch that line in verse 7? They have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Israel rejected God under the guise of a new government. It's chapter 4 right, all over again, except this time she's not substituted trust in God with the ark, she's substituting it with the monarchy. But the heart issue with Israel is all the same as it was in chapter 4. She doubts God's care for her. She doubts that God has her back. She has forgotten the promise that he made in Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous, do not fear, or to be in dread of your enemies, for it is the Lord, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Fear, at its core, is always a struggle for faith. It's always a struggle for faith. When we give in to fear, part of what we're doing is we're giving up on faith. Because fear reflects this disbelief that God is trustworthy. Fear suggests that God isn't enough that his plans truly can't be our best plans. What did Jesus say to to the despondent Jairus in Mark 5, 36? He said, do not fear, only believe. Only trust, only have faith. God had the power to deliver his people in 1 Samuel just in the same way. He had the power to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And, of course, this desire for a king is is nothing but a fool's errand. We know that as we read it, as we reflect on these chapters. It's nothing but a fool's errand. Why? Because Israel already has a king. God is her king. God is her king. That's what Israel should have known. I mean, what is chapter 7 all about? Yes, it's about Israel's repentance, repentance. It's about our deliverance and restoration. It's about those things. But in the storyline of 1 Samuel, chapter 7, the point of it is that Israel without a king is perfectly capable of dealing with her enemies. She didn't need a king. Did a king deliver? And did a king's army deliver the plagues to the people of Egypt back in Exodus? Was that the work of a king and his army? Well, of course not. Did a king and his army defeat Pharaoh at Red Sea? Did a king and his army perform that daring nighttime raid deep into the heart of Philistia to capture the ark and to bring the ark back to Israel? No, it was two cows. They didn't need a king and an army to do these things. Did a king thunder from heaven and rout the Philistines before their very eyes back in chapter seven? No, God did all these things. He is their king. That's what they should know. That's what this whole testimony and story has been about, and yet they reject him. I mean, even the Ebenezer Stone, think back to chapter 7. It was a monument. That Ebenezer Stone, a monument to be a reminder that God will always meet the needs of his people. He will deliver them. That Ebenezer Stone, that reminder And the very next chapter, they've already forgotten, which makes the monarchy and its request here nothing more than a monument to man's own rebellion. They had that Ebenezer stone as a monument to God's faithfulness. Now they established their own monument and monarchy, and it's their own rebellion. They reached for a political solution to a spiritual problem, and we're going to see throughout the book, the costs are going to be catastrophic. My friends, let this just be a warning to us. Spiritual problems require spiritual solutions, and yet, how often in our own lives, when we confront spiritual problems in our own hearts, how often do we, do we seek to substitute a spiritual solution for, for a worldly solution? Right? So we fight our own discontentment with our lives, with our lot. We, conf- we, we confront that, and we fight it, and maybe we fight it with material stuff, thinking the things of this world will somehow satisfy Or our affections for God have waned, and so we resort to some gimmicks or some religious chicanery, just something that we think might temporarily meet our own needs. I mean, Israel needed to look back to God, but instead she looked to a new form of government. And even there, I wonder how much different we can be from Israel. You know, many of us, we rightly fear the direction of our own nation. I'm not going to get into a political commentary, but the debates were hard, they were hard to watch. And we, we look, and we look to SCOTUS, uh, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States, um, or we look to the Oval Office, and we think, okay, there's our solution. That's what we need, change. And yet, just this week, Chris Sutterfield sent me a, a link to some research that had been done by Lifeway of the Southern Baptist Convention by Ligonier Ministries with R.C. Sproul, and that research revealed a number of things. For one, 46%, 46% or nearly half of self-professed evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all of them. He accepts them all. Nearly half of evangelicals, according to this research, 52% believe that by our good deeds, we contribute to earning our own place in heaven. 52%. Of evangelicals that attend church, and presumably these are gonna be your more committed, so your more doctrinally thoughtful evangelicals, 48%, again, about half, 48% see no sin in sex outside of traditional marriage. Friends, the numbers in that study just keep going, and they tell a tragic tale. And we can reclaim, like SCOTUS in the Oval Office, but with basic theological confusion like those stats just reflected, what lasting impact do we honestly think any political solution is going to have? Did God write in Ephesians 3 that the wisdom, his wisdom, would be, would be known and be made manifold to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the Oval Office? Did he say that wisdom is going to be made known through a presidency, through any political means? No, he said it was going to be made known through the church, and yet our churches are so obviously desperately confused on the very things of what it means to, to be a Christian, to believe the gospel. No political solution is going to help with that. I would suggest that our political chaos is, is, is actually not the result, or I should say it's not the cause. Let me just put it this way. Confusion in politics reflects a deeper and more dangerous confusion that begins in the pew. That's what we have to, that's what we have to remember in these times. Our spiritual confusion, not the result of our political crisis. I think it's actually the cause of our political crisis. And our churches suffer from spiritual problems and until those problems are addressed, until people understand that actually God does it all from beginning to end. When Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't just kind of pretending. He was meaning by his death, he had done it all, his righteousness for ours. Until we grasp basic things like what does it mean to be saved, again, political solutions will do little, little good. And this is a lesson that Israel is going to have to learn that sometimes we must learn. And that brings us to our second point. All right, second point, rejecting God's rule for self-rule results in slavery. This is going to be verses 10 to 18. Rejecting God's rule for self-rule results in slavery. Chapter 8, begin verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord Will not answer you in that day. Oh, friends, that is hardly an apologetic for monarchy. Right? Israel is going to pay dearly for this demand to have a king like the nations. And did you hear the operative word in those verses? But right? it's that word take. That word take, he will take, take the best of what is yours and take it for himself. For himself, kingship would be costly. And so, we see really taxation for the very first time in Israel in these verses. Raw materials, money. He'll even take your own sons and daughters. And he'll take everything in order to fund this political machinery of the monarchy. And what's ironic is that in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel's going to remind the people that he, as their judge, he took nothing And their history ought to be screaming that God has taken nothing from you. Rather, God has provided everything for you. He's provided land and peace and rulers. This is what God does, He provides. And yet, the refrain of the king that they demand will be take, take, take. And if that's not enough, notice carefully how it culminates, verse 17, and you shall become his slaves. Israel's stubborn desire for a monarch is going to lead them straight back into bondage. And this is going to be partially fulfilled in Solomon's reign. But it's even going to be more fulfilled as Israel is exiled later on into, into Babylonian captivity. So just imagine centuries down the road, you got your king, he did take. He wasn't there to deliver you when you needed it. Now you're exiled in Babylon in captivity. Without a home, without land, without a king, now you're a slave. The monarch, again, you depended upon, deserted you in your greatest hour of need. And then you read this chapter. Imagine reading this chapter and seeing, it didn't have to be this way. Oh my gosh, you'd be pulling your hair out. You'd be thinking, no, this is like some West Craven horror flick, where you helplessly watch that naive and careless couple ignore all the warnings. And if you've seen any of the movies, you know, it's a cabin and it's at night and it's deep in the woods and the lock's broken and the door is ajar and none of the lights work and there's blood on the doorpost and yet the couple's like, that's a great place to spend the night. Well, of course not, you know, but they walk in foolishly and they meet their demise. You know, we laugh at that, but that's just like it is with us. That picture is just like it is with us every time we reject God's rule for our own self-rule. It's been that struggles between man and God ever since the garden. You know, Israel's request for a king, it's not about the merits of one political, uh, really, solution or system over another. You know, they're chafing under God's sovereign right to rule them just in the same way that you and I chafe under that same rule. And their call for a monarch was to take them out from underneath that rule so they could rule themselves. They figured they knew better than God. They thought their prospects with a king was better than their prospects with him. I wonder if you think your prospects are better without God. Maybe you come in, you're visiting. I wonder if you think your prospects are better without God. Because we all have our own kings, right? Those things we place our confidence in, be they in pleasure, or be they in success, or be they in knowledge or in a good reputation. And those things appear so promising at the outset. But I would suggest those things are just one-way streets to destruction. Because sin enslaves. It's what we thought of last week in First Samuel 7. It's what Jesus taught in John 8:34: "Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin." Sin seduces us with the prospect of joy and of freedom, and yet when we answer it, all we found we've done is we've walked straight into that cell and then locked the bars behind us. Right, and none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. And if that's you, just reflect on that for a moment. Do you believe you're free? I wonder if you have the power to not do those things that you think you shouldn't do. I wonder if you feel you have the power to do those things positively that you know you should do. Or do you just believe, hey, I am who I am. I've sort of given up on the whole prospect of change. Well, the wonderful thing about Christianity is that this God actually changes people from the inside out. And he can bring about change, genuine change, such that those things that you don't Want to do, you don't have to do. Not that the battle's over, the war still wages, but that power is there, and to do those things positively, you know you should do. That's the one, he is the one who can set you free. For there on the cross, another king of the Jews would come, but this king who comes in the New Testament isn't one who comes with that refrain of of take and take and take. He would not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus paid that price by becoming a ransom for sinners, and there at the resurrection, defeating sin and death, so that all who would trust him would no longer be slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, to his good reign. You can be freed from your bondage to sin by turning from it and trusting in him with all your heart. And it's that simple. And he can deliver you. He can genuinely change people. It's what Israel needed, right? It's what you and I, it's what we all need. I said, how do you respond to this one? For to reject this king is to reject not only the one who's willing to answer you, the one who stands ready to answer you, but it's to reject actually the only one with the true power to deliver you. All right, this brings us to our third and final point. Point three answered prayer is not always a sign of God's favor. It's the last thing we see here. Point three answered prayer is not always a sign of God's favor. When I refer to answered prayer, I'm just referring to that as in we got what we wanted. I recognize that every prayer ever uttered, God answers, positively he answers, but I'm just thinking, we often think of unanswered prayers as I prayed for something and it didn't happen as I desired. Okay, now, one one might think, after verses 11 to 18, that any sane person would say, you know what, forget the monarchy. Like, let's deal with Samuel's two sons before some king takes all of my sons. But what happens Right? they have just been given a sneak preview into their future. Will they heed God's warning? We pick up in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Right there, Israel, you want to see what a full-blown temper tantrum looks like for like an adult? Right there. They demand and insist on having their own way, stomping their feet, demanding it. Israel refuses to heed the voice of Samuel, which is to say she refuses to heed the voice of God. She's no different than Pharaoh. Remember what Pharaoh said? He would not heed God's voice. He refused to heed it did it possibly go well with Pharaoh? Would it possibly go well with them if they refused God's voice? Well, my friend, would it possibly go well with you if you know what God's word clearly says and you refuse to heed it? How could it go well with you? Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, right, rejecting God's word, even his prayer is an abomination. Israel's true motivation, though, notice her motivation. It's finally revealed there in verse 20. No, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations. Notice that they don't just want a king like the nations. They themselves want to be like the nations. You know, the pressure to conform was just too great. You can say Israel gives in to that peer pressure. She wanted the respect of her own neighbors, Israel wants to be taken seriously on the world stage. They don't want to be the laughing stock of the land with some, with some old judge again and his, his incompetent and delinquent sons. They don't want to be that people. And I wonder if you feel that pressure, that same pressure to conform, the pressure to fit in, the pressure not to be the butt of another's joke, you know, another's ridicule. I was thinking about, even thinking about this this weekend, my wife and I were at a small community event this past weekend, it was held by a local business downtown, and it was kind of a gathering of, um, of art, artists and architects, sort of educators, of, like a, the creative class, like the young intelligentsia, if you will, of Fayetteville. All the gathering down there, having time talking, greeting, I'm meeting a lot of people I don't know, and about five minutes in, it just occurs to me, oh my word, like I'm looking around these people, if they only knew what I believed if they only knew what I believed about heaven and hell, if these people only knew what I believed about gender and sexuality, they wouldn't have a category for it. I would be summarily dismissed. And so the pressure in that moment is like, well, I can just sort of step back from these things. I don't have to bring these things up. I don't have to talk about these things. I don't have to let these things define me. Yes, I'm a pastor, but right now I'm just out at a community event. I felt that same pressure to conform. And in their rush for acceptance, Israel feels that pressure to conform, and then she folds in fear. She folds in fear. That rush for acceptance, that futile grab for security. Israel forgot she had a king. She forgot that he had promised one with judges to rule over them, she forgot that she had one that had promised to fight her battles. Deuteronomy 7:21, "You shall not be in dread of your enemies. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear way all these nations before you. Right, there was never an army the Lord couldn't defeat. never a foe too great for him. The undisputed heavyweight champion is in their corner. And yet they kick him out of the ring and they call up this untried rookie and think that somehow he is going to deliver them. Oh, we know it's not going to end well. But that's what sin does. It blinds us to the truth. It distorts reality. It tells us, right, God's not enough. He can't fight our battles. He's sitting this one out. He's not reliable. He's not going to pull through. We've got to take matters into our own hand. But God has made himself plain, and Israel was without excuse. They did not honor God. They did not give thanks to him. But in the futility of their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. And demanding a king, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mortal man. Do you hear Romans 1 that Patterson read earlier? That same pattern in Romans 1 is the pattern of the human heart. We see it here even with the Israelites. They've been given over to their sin. Sometimes... Answered prayer, if you will, is not a sign of God's favor, but it's in fact a sign of his own judgment. Pick it up in verse 21. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Verse 22 is chilling. Obey their voice. Make them a king. That ought to knock the spiritual wind out of us because Israel's destiny is forever changed here. They will get what they asked for in Saul in the next chapter. Saul, whose name means asked, literally, asked of. A king who's going to be, as we'll see, very physically impressive, but spiritually, he's as blind as the pagans. He's a king like the nations. My friends, don't miss this truth God's kindness. God's kindnesses, they're often in the form of unanswered prayers. His kindness is often in the forms of unanswered prayers. And I recognize some of you may find me at the door and say, hey, did you know that's a line in a Garth Brooks song? And I didn't know that until my wife told me, which almost ruined the point for me, because I like country about as much as I like a trip to the dentist. But the point is still true. I'll give that one to Garth Brooks. The point is still true. God's greatest kindnesses are often in the form of unanswered prayers. You know, I know in my own life, I had my heart set on Stanford. Oh, I wanted to go. I didn't get in, didn't get in. I ended up at some East Coast school, with a bunch of prep school kids that I didn't quite get. It wasn't the best four years of my life, it was fine, but you know what? It was that rejection and landing in a different place that led me to meet people that would lead me into a church that would help me think about ministry. I don't regret that, very hard in the moment. Or finishing college. I had a job with an investment bank, Hamburg and Quist in San Francisco, all set on it down to the final round of interviews. I may have told you a story. My roommate got it, not me. Oh, it was brutal. I'm going down interviewing for a firm in LA. I didn't want to work for that firm in LA, but just so happened that the woman who's now my wife, we weren't dating at the time, that she was in LA at the same time, and we happened to meet up there for the interview, and that led to us being married. Do you think I regret the fact I didn't get the job in San Francisco? Oh, my goodness, I don't care about the job in San Francisco. I even think about coming here, you know, 17 months ago. I'm headed to the Bay Area. I'm all set. I got friends. I got family there. I know the industry, the weather. They even have water polo. Like, I know it. I get it. And last minute, 11th hour, door closed. This place calls, open up. Hey, Lord, I wasn't praying for this. The kindness of an unanswered prayer. I don't look back and think, I mean, I'm only, what, 12, 14 months on the back end of that. I don't look back with regret at all. I mean, we, if we think hard about our life, the Lord does that all the time, all the time. None of those things in the moment remotely look like kindnesses, right? But in any season of life, we can't see what the Lord is doing. Our eyesight is very dim. We see straight ahead. We don't know what's happening around us. Who knows the mercies that God has shown you By not giving you what you asked for. Who knows how many times we've shaken our fists in anger against God thinking if you only knew and yet if we only knew what God was protecting us from or what he was preparing us for. Friend, realize if you knew what God knows about your life you wouldn't be shaking your fists at him with unanswered prayer, but you'd be falling on your knees and worship. And yet the frightening thing is if if we persist in our rebellion and demand having what we want, sometimes God gives us over to it. And for Israel, it's gonna prove disastrous. But I want you to notice how the chapter ends because even in our greatest sins, God is often weaving A wonderful story of mercy. Because did you catch how it ends, right? Every man to his city. Does that phrase remind you of anything? Every man going to his city. Hundreds of years later, Israel is going to have a king like the nations. It's not going to be what they bargained for. That king would be an oppressive Roman ruler who has taken everything from them. Israel, they're slaves of that king. It's a Roman emperor, and yet it would be then with her glories, glories here in 1 Samuel that we see a distant memory. It was then that once again every man would head to his own city, and so Joseph and Mary would embark to Bethlehem where a true king, God's king, King Jesus would be born, but he wouldn't be a king like the nation's. Instead of exalting himself, Jesus would empty himself, taking the very form of a servant. In humility, he would wash his disciples' feet. Far from taking from his people, he, gave, he came to give of himself for his people. And just as Israel's monarchy had been a monument to man's rebellion, so the cross would be another monument to man's own rebellion And yet in mercy he would take that monument of rebellion and that monument would become the means by which he would once and for all save his people. There on the cross, a true king would be crowned, not with gold, but with thorns. And it would be there that he would set his people free. Peace and security from their greatest enemy would come at a steep price, but Christ would pay it. They wouldn't pay it. He would pay it. He would pay it for them by his own blood, Friends, Israel would have a king. God would show himself faithful. Israel one day would have a king, but he would not be a king of this world, not be a king who provided a kingdom of this world, something far more glorious than they ever dared to dream. Israel longed for a leader, one who could bring them peace and security. We all long for such a leader as that. God has given him to us in Jesus. He is our king. Our gracious King. To reject Jesus, to reject God's King, is to bring everlasting slavery. To receive Him, that ushers in everlasting life. Friends, how are you going to respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? Will you take Him to be your true and rightful King? Let's pray. God, we praise you again for how patient you are with us. Once again, your people straying from your good word and your ways, demanding the very thing that will be their downfall. Oh, God, and yet you, even in the following chapters, are still patient with your people. You do not walk away from them, you do not reject them, but you will again come and deliver them through Christ. Oh God, you are a faithful and a kind and a patient and a forbearing God. We pray that we would be those who would express faith in the one who is utterly trustworthy. Help us to do that even this morning and not give way to fear. In Jesus' name, amen.